Black Girl and Own promotes holistic wellness and inner beauty for women of color. We encourage self-care, self-love, and self-empowerment for communities of color. This is Lauren Ash, and thanks so much for listening to the Black Girl and Own podcast. Welcome to the expansion tour. We had a meditative moment this morning, and it actually continues. A different form of a meditation, a conversation, an exchange of energy, dialogue, creativity up here. For those of you who don't know, and perhaps maybe signed up through the wing, and you're like, this just looked dope, and it said something about women of color and creativity, and I'm here now. Black Girl and Ohm is a lifestyle brand and global community that is focused on holistic wellness for women of color. We are here also for self-care, self-love, and self-empowerment for communities of color. And we have a podcast. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe and left a little review if you loved what you heard. Feel free to do that. (laughs) We have conversations that are all-encompassing in all the subtopics related to healing and wellness and spirituality. We have an online publication, and we also do several different types of IRL and digital experiences as well. And I did this earlier, but I'd love to invite the BGIO team members to make themselves known. So stand up, wave a hand, whatever you want to do. We have Akudo, Alex, Valerie, and Paige, yes. So, you know, our team is phenomenal. We actually have approximately 15 people on the team right now. So for those of you who have been like ride or die black girl gnome since like the beginning, it really does take a whole village of people and it's all phenomenal black women who are producing all of the content that you so experience and appreciate that are writing the newsletters that hit your inbox. One just hit your inbox about an hour ago that are, you know, putting all those articles from our contributors up on the website, curating the BGIO Mindful conversation on Twitter every month. The list goes on, right? It really takes a whole community of people and they do it with love and intention and usually a lot of fun too. Um, (laughs) It can be stressful sometimes, but we just try to release stress because we're out here blessing people and also being blessed ourselves. So yes, in DC two weeks ago, I didn't say anything really about Black Girl Gnome, so I was like, remember to talk about Black Girl Gnome. right now. So we are going to get started into our creating space to expand conversation. And every tour stop on this tour, we're deepening into a different aspect of what that means. And so joining me are the women who have all the wisdom. I'm just so grateful to be in communication with, in relationship with, in dialogue with, the vast majority of the women on the tour, actually. Um, so it's not just like, oh, that person's cool and I'm randomly going to pull them in the fold. It's like, no, we already have an established relationship and like one that actually between Alexandria and I has stretched back for quite some years now. So I'm going to sing this woman's praises and, and to make sure I don't miss anything, I'm going to actually share her bio. So Alexandria Regbu is a visual artist and arts practitioner. On a fundamental level, Alexandria believes that the impact of art is strengthened by shared values within community. As such, she is most dedicated to providing services that promote empowerment and advocacy for artists and communities engaging the arts. Alexandria's early background and interest on the purpose of art within communities was initially fostered through her involvement as lead teaching artist and co-founder of the Community Curatorial Project with Trace. 
teens reimagining art, community, and environment right here in Chicago. A youth activism program facilitated through the Chicago Park District between 2014 and 2017. As an artist, Alexandria's multivocational practice has received generous support from the Propeller Fund, Chicago Arts Coalition, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events Chicago, the University of Chicago's Arts and Public Life, Independent Curators International, the Joyce Foundation, and Three Arts. She received her BFA in Performance and Fiber and Material Studies from the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. She is a current MA candidate in Visual and Critical Studies at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She also holds a position as curator for Illinois Humanities Citywide Initiative Envisioning Justice. So that show was just up, and I hope many of you got to see it. It was really profound. It examined how incarceration affects Chicago communities and interrogates the failures of our criminal justice system while presenting plans towards self-empowerment and communal liberation. And she has several previous curatorial projects and... You should check them all out on her website because I could just go on and on and on and on. So please join me in welcoming Alexandria Redbu. <laughs> so, how are you today? How are I'm you good. Doing? Yeah, this is different for me. So I'm like easing in, you know? But yes, this is great. I love it. <laughs> I love it. You glowing, you shining, you look fantastic. Thank you, darling. See? Yes. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, I've read the accolades, I've read the bio, I read about the creative work that you produce and the ways that it's blessing people. Who would you say that you are today? Who are you? What comes to mind? The first thing that comes to mind is a flower, honestly. I think what I love about flowers is that they contain a combination of masculine and feminine parts, and they're balanced in this really beautiful object. They also give back to their environments, right? Birds, bees, butterflies feed off of them, and then they die. And they're beautiful when they die too. So I'm really, yeah, I feel like so much, even in my bio, right, there's been so many journeys. And I'm only 28 years old. <laughs> so um, one of the things, especially after this Envisioning Justice initiative, I'm really aware of the reincarnations that have been happening over the last 10 years, especially since I began my journey as an artist. So, yeah. I love that. Reincarnations and with the flower, you noted not just the beauty that it has when it's in bloom, but also that it does have an expiration date, right? But it's a cycle, really. And this is the season of transition. You know, we're in autumn. It's a season that, energetically speaking, we can all be thinking really mindfully around what to release, what to edit from our lives, what to let go of, and sometimes we have resistance to that. I know the past year, probably year and a half, has been one that has marked a lot of really profound transition for you, a lot of awakening that you've had around who you are as an artist, who you are as a woman, as a spirit. So could you talk us through some of your awakenings, perhaps, around what it means to expand? And let's actually stay with the expansion as an artist but I know being an artist is also so inextricably linked to like who you are as a woman and who you are as like a spiritual being as well so feel free yes that is a super loaded question for me but I think the first place where I really want to start as an artist right one of the things that I've come to realize is my deep need for solitude and space to be alone right that space, that solitude also gives way to opportunities for rest, 
opportunities for me to imagine and then go back in the world and do my work. The thing about being an artist, though, is that you're always on the grind. The way that the universe, this world is set up, it's not really built to support artists, traditional artists like myself. You're taught that you have to really fight at your passion. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that, right? But I think there's a point in which you approach a moment of exhaustion and depletion. And so I've really had to learn how to um, find ways to seek and restore balance within myself and create space to be patient with myself as well, be patient with others who might not understand, you know, the fact that I need that space or time or what have you. Because I do feel like as an artist, the amount of time that I need to myself is atypical to other industries or other um, disciplines. The other thing about that, too, is like while I need that solitude and space to myself, like so much of my work really grows and expands from that connection, from that warmth. It lights up my whole body, right? And so that tension, that negotiation sometimes is always something that I'm steadily working through how to balance on a daily basis. One of the things that I'm really trying to be mindful of right now is just my flow and my own sort of sense of internal rhythm because I think once we master that, it really allows the world to not just be a world anymore, like I'm realizing, I said this to one of my friends, something's happening where I'm able to actualize things like quite literally as I speak them. And through that, that like knowing of myself, I'm seeing my world not just simply be a world anymore, but expand to a universe where I'm able to really sort of exercise all the many facets of myself, right? I'm so, I think... As a young person growing up in the suburbs, I have so many different parts of my identity and background, right? I got really used to being conditioned to compartmentalize different parts of myself. And then I came into the city and saw how so much was integrated. And it's taken me 10 years to really figure out a strong way to incorporate that into my own life. So... Yeah, I'm touching on a lot of things, I feel like, but it's that's where I'm at. on purpose. <laughs> it's all on time. Yes, yes. I really like that you called attention to this idea of balance as well. A friend of mine, Dr. Tiffany Lester, I remember at the top of this year, she said something that struck me around balance being possibly something that we talk about wanting a lot. But actually, what we should be striving for is harmony, this idea of like, sometimes there's going to be more of the rest, unapologetic rest. And like you said, being patient with others for not understanding that that's what I need to give myself. And also being patient with my process around knowing that I don't always have to be in a space of production at all times, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And so... I just think that's beautiful that you led with your response talking about how you center care essentially for yourself. And so many of us think that there's no space and time for care. Yeah, it's, an, it's a deep illusion I'm realizing. Like all of the things that I, I still am I'm working through sort of the anxieties and fears around like security, right? my use of time, right? All of this stuff. It's what you make it ultimately, and that's how it becomes your reality. But 
No one can, nothing can really sort of create what you need for you. You have to do that for yourself. And so I've really just been trying to work on, I mean, since I was a kid, there was a desire to be fiercely independent, right? But I'm realizing how that independence can sort of get you into trouble. You can wind up being that lonely, cold, bitter person. And so, yeah, that harmony between both things. I love that you use that word because that's actually the word that I prefer to use. (laughs) I think is really, really important. Yeah, my mind is going a lot of places, but... Like you said, you're in a universe now. So it's there, it's there, it's there. Everywhere. It's everywhere. (laughs) In the future, in the past. Yes. So I was really struck by how just divine this whole thing was. Like we were together about a month ago. I was telling you about the tour and then I was like, hey, you want to be the guest for Chicago? And you're like, yeah. And I was like, cool, see you on the 20th. And since then, I mean, we spent a lot of time together last month, but then this whole weekend, I was even struck yesterday, we were at our friend's house, Abana, and she, you and I were, it was just, it was everything that we're talking about today, community, sisterhood, intuition, creativity, just there, right? So like you're helping Abana with her Hana Hana beauty shoot. Yes, ma'am. You know, <laughs> all the artistic elements that she's pulling into that. Meanwhile, I'm drafting up the questions to ask you for the talk today. Meanwhile, I'm like asking you questions about like your artwork in your house. Like everything that you're about that I read, it's like you're about in your everyday life. And so I was thinking a lot about too how for our sister circle here in Chicago, like all these dynamic black creative women who support one another, that is wellness. That is a cultivation of well-being and community. So how have you learned and like sharpened your best practices for cultivating sustainable relationships with other black women, specifically other black creative women too. So it's, I think, a dynamic there too. That's really amazing. Yeah. I feel like my relationship with other black women and creative women really opened up once I started to fully see myself. There's just so many things, again, that I feel like Socially, we are conditioned to just almost naturally do, like compete, right? (laughs) And I come from a place where, actually several environments where historically you're the only one, right? So then when you step into a space and you see two, three, four, 10, 15, 20, 34, you know, it's, it's kind of shocking at first, at least for me. And so... Where my relationships really started to expand was the moment where I really decided to start exercising the right to simply express and create for myself and also not shying away from sharing those things with other people because I can be 100% a very internally sort of reflective person. So communication has definitely been another thing. I think communication and expression, expression and communication, both of these things. Also, I'm sorry that I'm staying in this like political mind frame, but this is like where I've been the last two years. But just culturally and socially, totally policed amongst black people, black communities. To the point, I mean, I feel like, I don't know, I struggle sometimes with just the way that media operates right now. But 
you know, there is a culture of even social policing, like we do that to one another, shaming, judgment, all of these things. And so the moment that I started to surrender what I thought things should be and accept what they just simply are, that's really when things started to unfold in a magnificent way for me. That's beautiful because that's what we talked about during the meditation this morning too, this ability to like allow, accept, observe, create curiosity rather than judgment around something. Absolutely, yeah. Um, And yeah, you talking about the ways that we're policed, I think that's particularly felt here in a city like Chicago. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I know Chicago is for your family home, right? Like for a couple generations. Yeah. And I think that your work is reflective of who you are and where you are too, you know, and how where you are isn't just where you grew up, but it's also like where your family is from. So I'd love to actually like transition into talking a bit about your art. Mm -hmm. And I know that you work primarily with textiles, but not solely with textiles. And something that's really unique about you that I always love to talk about because I think it's so powerful to consider it is that you do not sell your artwork. You're very intentional about keeping it for yourself and your family as this archival, powerful, like this can give us something that we need mm-hmm. practice. So let's talk about your art, girl. Let's talk about yeah, it. Yeah, you know, I mean, you touch on a lot of things. Like, for me, I'm a cancer, right? So it's really important for me to feel, and I travel a lot. It's important for me to feel at home wherever I go. I've just, I've realized that. And I, um, I've also realized that I'm able to find home in a lot of different things. It's not just people, it's not just a place, you can find home in an object. Since I was a kid, textiles and cloth really has been just an ongoing love language of mine. And that's also how I sort of look for home in different things, places, and people, um, is based off of what I'm, I'm calling now just my love languages, the things that really sort of activate my mind and awaken my heart. So, yeah, cloth has always been one of those things. I loved playing dress up. My father is Nigerian, so when he would go back, he would bring fabric and stuff. We would get fabric sent to us from our uncles and aunts and things of that nature. On my mom's side, my great-grandparents... Uh, My great-grandmother, she had a sewing room. Their home here in Chicago used to be in Garfield Park, and that was the meeting place for everyone in our family for several decades. I call that place as like one of my first, actually, art museum experience because they just had so much work from our family up in the home. And my earliest memories of just people being creative were in that space, watching her. My great-grandfather, he was a photographer, and he had a dark room that he built in his basement. My uncle, my great-uncle, Uncle Michael, passed away early in the 2000s. He was the one that really inspired me to want to become an artist. During the holidays, he would just make sure that there were materials and things where we could as kids just play and be creative, whether it was face painting or drawing, put on some music and we would just go at it for hours. 
yeah, so those memories are a deep part of some of the things that I'm trying to awaken in my practice today. The textiles that I make include photographs from my great-grandfather's archive, either silk-screened or uh, transferred, photo-transferred onto the cloth. Um, I quilt myself. Yeah, I love color. I like the way indigo that... Indigo dye yeah, process? Yeah, indigo dye process, but there's a lot of other colors that I like to work with as well. I think color is so important, and there is a moment... I'm not even going to lie here. I'm going to keep it all the way 100. Like, you go to art school, right? You go to school, period. And these places, they really try to condition you. Um, It really puts you to the test to um, reveal or remind you of who you are. And some of us forget. Some of us return back to ourselves. For me, that place was a space of returning, but it was, it was not easy. Anyways, all of that is to say is that one of the reasons why I am very adamant about not selling my work that deals with my family is because of the way that the market works today, right? And controls so much of the production and the types of content that is being produced out in the world. I'm not really pleased with the way that, I mean, there's a lot of artists that I really admire, and I think one of the things that social media and just sort of this expansion of um, globalization and sharing right now has really done is that it's created opportunities for people to really exercise forms of expression, which is really dope. But the other side of that for me is just the way that capital has sort of facilitated so many of us to sort of become machines (laughs) and produce things that maybe we don't necessarily want to make, but we know that we need to get a check, so we're going to make it anyways, or we're going to do it anyways. That's one of the reasons why I'm a bit more hesitant and reserved from selling my family work, because I feel like as someone who is a descendant of slaves on one side of my family, right? This question of possession, right? Dispossession, belonging, knowing of self, self-worth, all of these things are embedded literally in my DNA. And, you know, my great-grandparents' house, that was a situation where it was something that was really special to the people in my family, and we had to sell it because we couldn't afford it, Right. And all of the things inside of it, you know, people came and a lot of it just was, went for free. So, you know, I just imagine about what my world could look like if I let go of this fear of not being able to have belongings, right? That's definitely something that I'm working through. Even in my practice right now, I'm still in a little bit of disbelief of, of how much I've been able to expand and grow in my career. I just stepped into my second studio. It's like 750 square feet. That's like bigger than some apartments here, you know, like, and um, yeah, I have more ambition to just keep growing and get my own property, things of that nature. And some of that is challenging in situations where I would be more um, open to really just embracing the opportunity. I think when finances and money sort of comes into the picture, there's always a little bit of hesitation or reservation. So I'm trying to really think through just 
my relationship to the resources that I do have and what I already see holds meaning and value and how I can keep those things for myself. I don't have to give them away. What should make me think that a museum can tell my story better than me or better than my grandmother? You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's a huge part. I think just on the, like, activist side, I don't know, um, of things like that's, or maybe not even activist, I would just say more radical side of my practice. Um, that's where things are at there. I mean, there are other pieces of my work, like photography and things of that nature that I will sell. I'll do commissioned work. But yeah, it's really important for me to find just other ways because I never, and I had to say this to another artist on a panel, like I never want to be in a position where I feel as though I need to make work that is inauthentic to who I am and what I want to create just for the sake of a sale. That's not right, you know, that's a total antithesis of what art making for me and what an artist is about. Artists are supposed to tell the truth, regardless of what that is. And if I'm not telling the truth, then that's a disservice to not only me, but the actual purpose and function of what it is that my work is supposed to do in the world. Well, that was a whole word. There's so much to unpack from what you said, and you're just like this, spring of wisdom and like truth which I appreciate I really appreciate when you were talking about the idea of like how could a museum tell my story better than me and reflecting on that statement as connected to your first kind of experience of a museum was your own family's home you know and this idea of like young Alexandria, like walking the halls of this home and seeing all these beautiful visuals that your family had a hand in creating and knowing from a young age that that was something that you could do, you know, and that, that was something that would also be valued because it was on the walls. It wasn't like tucked away somewhere, you know, it was literally on the walls visible for you to see and appreciate. And that's just so remarkable to me. And I know that for you, another source of your creative inspiration that also is something that people I think oftentimes dismiss because I, I'm not even sure why but um, is for you dreams and the subconscious right and we are always like girl this dream I had and I'm like yeah tell me yours you know and not just of like a, I dreamt about this and that's interesting or weird but like a, I dreamt about this and what could this possibly mean how could this relate to my lived reality how could this relate to this challenge that I'm facing and how expansive the role of dreams can be if we allow them to and if we cultivate a practice too around honoring them you know because I think that that's something. It's like, just like we were speaking about earlier, the practice of honoring your emotions, it is a practice, you know? It's a conscious decision that you have to make as often as possible. And in that honoring, I believe that you will be blessed. So how has the realm of the subconscious and dreaming informed your work as an artist and led to further expansion as a spiritual being as well? Yeah, I've always been an avid dreamer since I was a child. Like, it's weird to say out loud, but some of my dreams as a kid were almost like premonitions to the point where they scared me. There was a moment, I don't think I was a quite a teenager yet, but 
I was having really bad nightmares. And it was to the point where my family had to, like, they took me to the church and they had people pray on me. And then after that, like, I, I didn't have nightmares again for a long, long, long time. Even now, some of the, like, disturbing dreams that I might have, they're not scary. They're just messages. Anyways, so I've always, this has always been a part of me. And then there was even, I have a sister, we're two and a half years apart. And for a long time, we used to sleep in the same room. We had bunk beds, right? There would be moments I slept on the top bunk, she was on the bottom. We would wake up and we would also share our dreams. And there would be some times where we would actually dream quite similar things. So, um, yeah, it's, it's strange, again, to just say these things out loud because I don't know how many people in this room actually experience that. I'm sure maybe that happens more often than not because I think the subconscious, collective subconscious really does connect us in these really profound ways that go beyond reason, right? It wasn't until I got into undergrad where I started to really sort of incorporate uh, my dreamscapes and my relationship to the subconscious and to my work. And that was partially because of this discourse that's been happening for several decades. Here in Chicago, Chicago has a very deep history to this as well, but surrealism, both there's Western surrealism, but then there's also black surrealism. And, you know, we have, Chicago has the Chicago Surrealist Movement, which I don't know how many of you all know, but actually the world's largest surrealist exhibition took place right here downtown in 1972. It included work from over 300 artists from over 30 to 50 countries. If you think about that time period, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> that was pre-social pre media, pre-internet, pre yeah, everything. But they organized officially it, enough to get 300 people here. Yeah, mm -hmm. Amiri Baraka, he was the first person to coin the term Afro-Surreal Expressionist. He's a really amazing poet here in Chicago. And so quite... It was just, I guess, divine timing. That's what I would say it was. My junior year of undergrad, a brother of mine, Devin Kane, he introduced me in 2011 to this manifesto that had just recently come out called um, Black is a New Black Afro Surreal Manifesto. And so um, he was really interested in creating a proposal, Columbia College, to bring artists together from all over the city to respond to this call around Afro-surrealism and really sort of represent on an aesthetic level some of that discourse. Yeah, so that knowing over the last, let's see, that was in 2012, 2013. Since then, I would say my life really has unfolded in this magical way, like beyond my imagination in a lot of ways but I've learned to get a lot more diligent about writing my dreams down in addition to speaking them and sharing them with other people as a means to better interpret, I think just symbols and things that pop up in my daily life and also as a means to tell better stories with my work. Yeah, there, I, I could talk about surrealism for a long, long time, but I don't know how much time we have to really get into it. But yeah, I, I, 
dreams have just always been a part of me. And it goes back to this sort of rest thing. I realize that when I am disconnected, right, I'm not my best self, well-rested. I can't, I'm not having dreams. And my imagination, even when I like have commissions and things of that nature, like the work is trash. So it's been really important for me to make sure that I am being diligent about tending to that space specifically because I see now how it impacts so much of everything else that I do. Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, that connects to what you were offering at the beginning around rest and how even in industries where we're told, like, create, 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 or else, that going against that grain can be so profound. And then it also inspires other people. I'm sure that in you centering rest more, you've inspired other artists around you to take some time. Um, We didn't talk about this before, but it popped into my mind and I'm just following the way that the spirit moves. Um, Martinique, like you said at the top, you travel a lot. You particularly have gravitated towards the beauty and culture of Martinique and that has informed a lot of your work. I know one of your newest creative expressions and practices that curiosity really led you to and your family legacy led you to is DJing. And um, you were talking with a couple of us the other night around how your first kind of official DJ project was inspired by the sounds, including soundscapes that you recorded in Martinique. And I just think that's so beautiful, you know, using our life and using travels as inspiration for creative expression that we share with the world, you know, in a way, again, it's not tied to capital. It's not tied to like, I got commissioned to do this project. It's like, I lived and now I'm sharing my life as art, you know? So talk with us about Martinique. Talk with us about like how, yeah, just talk. And I know that connects with surrealism too. So then you can deepen into that because I can tell you want to. (laughs) And also it connects the community. It does. Because you go there with a group of artists. Okay, so Martinique, the way that the surrealists describe it um, is considered one of the birthplaces of surrealism is this tiny little island in the Caribbean the Lesser Antilles it maybe takes like two and a half hours to drive from the southern tip to the northern tip but even in that density right um, that small small little island there's just so much diversity between the plant life Even the landscape, there's waterfalls, there's volcanoes, there's the Caribbean Sea, there's the Atlantic Ocean, and there's rivers, there's rainforest, it has everything. (laughs) Um, And I really call that place, when I went the first time, it was a heart-opening place. We went to this place called the Balata Garden, which is this, I don't know, it's several acres worth of land that is just really gorgeously and immaculately um, manicured and kept, but it brings all of this life to it. Hummingbirds, they have just a wealth of different flora there. The sounds are amazing. I took so many videos of just, there's a visual component, right? But for me, the listening component was really the most profound thing. At night, you can hear the dogs um, howling to the moon or what have you. You know, there's, everyone drives because it's impossible to walk from point A to point B because of how hilly and things, everything are. 
So you hear the traffic and the buzzing of the cars and no road is straight. Everything weaves and winds around the hills and the mountainside. I have been to a place similar to Martinique before. My first trip out of the country was Haiti, and I was 17. It was two years before the massive and unfortunate earthquake that took place there. But Martinique was different for me because I had spent five years reading about Martinique through my uh, work with my collective, Dumas Noir, Devin and Krista, amongst many others. We traveled down there for the first time last year in June to do some research about, yeah, our origins. <laughs> and um, yeah, I guess what I really want to say about this place is just um, I experienced so many different waves of emotion while I was there. I call it like in my experience, it really was a crossroads of sorts. Um, the first day, okay, the first day, so I'm a number one, and I like to take leadership in a lot of situations when it comes to organizing things. And so within my collective, I was responsible for booking our flights, our Airbnb, yada, yada. We get off the plane, and I realize that, oh, shit, we can't check into our Airbnb until like 3 p.m. It's morning time. None of us are interested in renting a car because it's impossible to drive there if you're not from there. How are we going to get around? We have all this luggage, all of these suitcases. So we run into a man. His name is Kalonji. I call him the man of light because that's what his name means, light. And he, he actually owns a taxi company. He um, sees us kind of walking around and stuff, and he gives us a flyer. He's like, hey... You know, this is just like Uber. We don't have Uber down here. But if you guys need help getting around, just call this number and we'll be able to help you out. We end up getting a ride back to um, our place somewhere else. But for the first several hours, we're just like downtown and downtown in Fort de France walking around. Everyone's looking at us crazy. So already I'm like frustrated because I'm just like, this is not how I pictured our first day being like we're here on this island. Like, I was thinking we were going to chill, drink some rum, blah, blah, blah. Okay. We finally get to our Airbnb. And I think the second day, Devin and I decide to take a trip to the marketplace to get groceries. No big deal. The marketplace, the big marketplace that everyone goes to is called Care For Market. Care for is actually, I think, the French word for crossroads. We do our shopping. This big, it's like bigger than Walmart. It's bigger than Costco. Like, I've never seen anything like this, but this place is huge. We do our shopping, get all of our stuff. I'm checking my pockets, and I realize I don't have a phone. I was the one that was responsible for booking all of our transportation, all of it. I somehow left my phone in the taxi and I have no idea how I'm going to get it back. So Devin has his phone. I think ultimately we were able to either hitch a ride from somebody to get back because I think maybe his service wasn't working well. It had been hours. Krista was worried sick. 
we get back, and at this point, I'm just feeling so distraught. I'm frustrated with myself. You know, I'm embarrassed. I feel like I've let everybody down. I just go into my room and I cry. Like, I'm just done. Because it's also like I'm in a foreign place. I've been to French speaking countries before, but. There's nobody that I can really talk to about this. I want my mom at this point. Like, I just want somebody you to You couldn't even to call me. your mama because you didn't have your phone. I didn't do shit, okay? So I'm bawling my eyes out. Krista's like, you know what? I think, hang in there, sit tight. I think your phone is going to pop back up. So what we actually do is we make a little offering to uh, Papa Legba, who's, um, you know, he's the road opener, right? He's also a little trickster. And all day, I remember one of the first mornings that we were there, there's this bullfinch that has, it's like black and red. Those are Legba's colors. That bullfinch. Uh, yes, they Pay are. Attention. I am. Um, that bullfinch, the first or second day, flies into my room and shits on my, on my netting on my bed. <laughs> I can't make this up. Messages. Yeah. So I'm just like, okay, universe, I see you. I see you. All right. Obviously, there are some things that are being disrupted and some things that I need to sort of work through. Okay. The next morning, after crying my eyes out, I send a bunch of emails. I try to email the tech people to see if by any chance they have come across my phone because I don't even know like in the app there's no way of connecting with the taxi or cab driver right it's just like random so I send some emails we wait we give our little offering some popcorn some rum some cigarettes some pennies I think it took two days Krista gets a phone call on her cell phone it's Kalonji and he has my phone. Man of light. The man of light. We also, um, one of the things that we failed to do, which we should have done, but maybe not because everything ended up working out, we didn't get a translator, which was suggested when we submitted our proposal to consider budgeting a translator. And we also, that translator would have supported like our tours and our guide, right, of the island. So Kalonji, he brings back the phone, and he also, so his business is called Kalonji Taxis and Tours. So he also offered to support us with some tours for the last, like, three or four days of our stay. And again, you met this man right off the plane. The first person he that I met. He was already like, I'm the man of light. Like, I can show you anything you <laughs> need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he did that. I got my phone back, and... The last half of our stay was absolutely magical. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change that trip for the world, to be honest. I loved it so much that, what, five, six months later, I took my whole family there. And now this year, um, we're making a ritual out of going to Martinique for the holidays, for the new year. Uh, my grandmother is planning on coming. She just retired. My aunt and uncle are coming down with us. So, whew. It's been a lot this last year. Celebrating the new year with my family, my immediate family especially, was really special. My father, the first time that I went to Martinique, not even two weeks after I got back, my father was in jail for a couple of days. And that moment really just erupted a lot in my family. 
between not only my mother and my father, but, you know, me and my sister, my relationship with my father. It's interesting, like, what happens when things are taken away from you. That's something that I've been thinking a lot about, especially over the last year, is loss and how sometimes I think my lesson really has just been surrendering to certain notions of attachment and also trying to be a better steward of showing up to the things that are present and have always been in my life, right, with appreciation and gratitude. I think every child, right, has their own sort of qualms or what have you with their parents, regardless of whether or not they're fully in your life or not. I've been very fortunate to have a two-parent household. My parents are still together. I've been married for over 20 years. But even in that, with that privilege, I consider it a privilege. Like, there are things that I had to overcome just to, like, see them as whole human beings, right? And that moment last year really awakened just a lot for me, seeing people beyond just, like, the role that they play, but, like, actually as their full whole self. And then going back to envisioning justice, too. <laughs> that work the got real. Of all of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, this question and notion of fatherhood has been really big in my life, all my life, honestly. I am definitely my father's child. And I've been a daddy's girl since the beginning. But, yeah, within my family, my relationship to men was kind of estranged, I think, because they, there weren't a lot present. My grandfather on my mom's side had been incarcerated since life sentencing since before I was born. And so I grew up, you know, sort of witnessing how that loss sort of impacted the women, especially around me. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to participate in Envisioning Justice because of that experience and that silencing of that story. I wanted to be able to find space within my life to actually address it and talk about it for myself primarily, but also to like heal my relationships with other people in my family. But even in that, my grandfather is essentially a stranger and so there was a sense of um, distancing that I was still able to do within the Envisioning Justice work where like God was just like, nope, you said you wanted to do this, so we're going to you know, bring it to you and you're going to have to deal with it. And for that, I am infinitely grateful because it's really important to me, especially within my practice and my work, to be able to follow through with the things that I say that I want to do or intend to do. Yeah, I mean, what can happen to you can happen for you, and it always does. Um, thank you so much for, for illuminating the different ways that your travels have provided opportunities for you to expand, you know, from clear messages to me from God and your guides around what you actually need to be focused on. Like, you were trying to be like, I got everything put together perfect for this trip, and they just did a little alley-oop, and it's like, no. 
you know, what and whom are you really going to lean on throughout this? And how is that going to bring all of you together in a way that's actually necessary for the work that you're doing here in this space? And everything that you just shared about your experience with your father alongside the work that you're doing with Envisioning Justice. We talk a lot within the Black Grown Home Circle around the power of intention. And it's like, if you set these intentions, you better believe that if you're walking in alignment with them, there's going to be all these situations in your life that arise that provide for you to deepen into them even more and to like hone what you're really made of. And it can feel, you know, sometimes we can fall into a victim mentality around a lot of things. And it's like, no, I'm literally a creator. I can create from this space and I can oftentimes create much more than I ever could have imagined if I lean into the support systems around me, if I lean into guidance, divine guidance, if I lean into my highest self as well, you know, knowing that sometimes we feel weak and alone and without and there's always, I believe, a greater, a greater and higher power that we have access to within our own selves as well. So we wanted to also give some time for some Q&A, you know, if you have anything that you wanted to pose. Or it could also just be like a thought, right, that you want to just throw an offer to the collective. And we have a microphone, so that will make its way to you for your question and or thought. All right, in the front here, if you could say your name... I'm Shinieri. Thank you both. This is an amazing experience so far. Um, I really connected with you when you talked about how you try and decipher your dreams and what they mean to you. Do you ever have like really, really vivid dreams that you remember details from and they stand out to you, but it's really hard for you to articulate them so that way you can't really interpret them yourselves or from someone else? And what do you do with that if that happens? (laughs) Yeah, that happens to me all the time. I think... For me, there's several dreams that I still have questions about, you know, and what I've realized and learned is that not everything is so immediate. Images are so powerful, I think, because once you see something, it's really hard to unsee it, especially if it strikes a chord here and here. So I guess my answer to you would just be to do nothing. You'll know if there's a message that is supposed to be shining through for you, you'll know when that time comes. Thanks. I would co-sign that as someone who has vivid dreams too. The practice of writing them down, and for me, the practice of writing them down in a specific journal that's only for the dreams, because for a while I was like, no, I'll just write them in my journal that I write all my other things in. But I continue to receive the message of like, you need a dream-specific journal. And as soon as I started doing that, I would remember them even more than I already was, like details in them even more than before. And sometimes then when you like glance back through that particular journal, you're able to receive things later too. Yeah. Within that journal, do you like write down what you think it means at that certain point? And then if you go back to it, does it potentially mean something new to you? I actually currently don't write at all what it means. I just write down the dream itself. And I think that like, I intuitively can know what it means, but I don't actually name what it means in that journal, if that makes sense. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but like, I literally just write the dream in there. Mm-hmm. Amazing question. Oh, yes, over here. Hi, I'm Maya. I definitely resonated with a lot of what you were saying, especially about your trip. And I was wondering about the role that intuition plays, and not just your work, but your life. Because it seems like from what a lot of you were saying, it's like you're divinely guided almost 
I get the sense. And I was wondering if you also do anything to help strengthen your intuition as well. Yeah, intuition is really important for me. I learn constantly, time and time again, that when I have a feeling about something, to act on it immediately, because when I don't, it comes up moments later, be like, shoulda, coulda, woulda, but you didn't, so here you are. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so much for me, when it comes to intuition, is about quite literally feeling, and I'm learning. My father is an athlete. Before I became an artist, my background really was in sports and athleticism. And this relationship with my body, tending to that was really, and still is really, really important. For some reason, when I went to art school, I don't know if because SAC doesn't have a gym or what, but that kind of fell off. And so honestly, it came back when I met Lauren, to be totally real. Like, Black Girl in Ohm, those yoga classes, that was a serious life changer, game changer for me because prior to that, I didn't really have like an exercising movement community but that I've always been, even since I was a kid, very, very active. And so ignoring that, I think really stunted my growth when it came to my intuitive practice and process. So yeah, I, I really just encourage you to encourage everyone to tend to that space of your body and come into terms and contact with what truly feels good to you. And once you're able, and if you're already there, kudos to you. But I think that space really for me has helped strengthen my intuitive capacity. I can be a very judgmental person (laughs) not towards others really but really myself very hypercritical and I think part of that is just because I just naturally have always been very open and very sensitive and very aware and so one of the things that I've had to learn is how to protect myself in that so that when I come into contact with things that are foreign to me I can decipher it as something that's foreign to me and not of me, right? That's key. I just want to underscore that for those of you writing down. That's key. Yeah. And then once you kind of establish that practice or process for yourself, and I say I'm making it specific to you because I think that everybody's practice and process is different. And I don't want to say anything to, like, make anyone think that that's the way that it should be. Because my mind, that's where my mind goes in moments like that. But, yeah, when you establish what that means for you, right, then I think the next step really is protection. And then I would say flow, you know, just dance, dance with life. That's what I've really been kind of opening myself up to doing is, like, yeah, dancing and singing and those things that like really kind of make my spirit soar is a huge part of my intuitive and I would say like divine guidance. I actually read in a book, it's called Ask Your Spirit Guides. Music is something that attracts your angels. So there's so much on this. Like I want to say so much right now. 
also, because we're talking about community and relationships, your intuitive discernment can also be sharpened the more that you open yourself up to talking with friends of yours who are also in that same, I would say, vibration as you, you know, other people who are like spiritually rooted, spiritually interested, like connected in or desiring to be connected with their ancestors as well. Like you and I, there's just so much flow in terms of guidance that you receive and messages that you receive. And then like, I needed that. And I'm so glad that you told me that. And then it's sparking all of this. And so it's like the more that you're able to sharpen your own and then cultivate trust around who you can be in communication with around it. Like you'll just see that it's like, again, the universe thing, you're literally cultivating your own reality at all times. And like other people in it, are able to get into that flow. Like you said, it really is. And it's really powerful. We've already had moments like this in the past couple of days that I've been here. Absolutely. So yeah, it's really powerful. Um, one or two more questions and, or again, ideas, comments, things you want to offer. Yes. Hi, I'm Taylor. And, um, I really resonated with your idea on, policing each other um, that happens on a daily basis, right? And so I wanted to hear what your thoughts are on like the idea of self-policing versus self-discipline. Discipline is one that I'm still working on, I'll be very honest. (laughs) I think I'm getting better, but like as an artist, I'm sure there are artists that are a lot better at this than me, but my life just the last 10 years really has not mirrored itself or like been the same. There's no single day in my life looks the same. And for me, part of that discipline then becomes about thinking through and working through and identifying what the things are that I need to have like a positive and healthy day. And then where the self-policing comes in, I think is not going too hard on myself for maybe having a day or two where that those things don't make their way in there, right? Yeah, this question is a good one because it, I, I kid you not, literally last night I was having a conversation about it. I think I'm still working on sort of decolonizing my mind from just this notion of routine and like what routine is supposed to look like, to be totally honest. And just opening up and surrendering to what are the consistencies within my daily habits and my daily practices and trying to stay true and firm to them based off of what feels good and not necessarily what I'm told to do or what I see everyone else around me doing. So I don't know. Lauren, do you have anything? I'm asking for a friend. (laughs) Call a friend. I answered. So yeah, I love this. I love this. I mean, I have shifted a lot of my understandings about discipline to be rooted within a more spiritual framework and also aligned with the idea of joy. So like, how can discipline be less about like, shame on you, you didn't do this thing and you didn't do it on time when sometimes things aren't supposed to be done on time. What is time? What is time? Exactly. Like time isn't even real. (laughs) And then also like, how can I cultivate a spirit around celebration we oftentimes just punish ourselves for not doing the things rather than celebrate for doing the things or like just celebrate just because you know celebrating doing nothing yes 
A lot of actually this is getting me to think about a book that has brought me a lot and I haven't even read the whole thing yet called um, Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown. And I don't really know what context you're asking this question within, but I actually don't think it matters entirely because pleasure activism is about identifying how you can center pleasure in everything that you do. And so how can discipline be a pleasurable act? And if it's not currently, why is that? You know, this decolonization of the idea of ritual and routine and like how you are doing is really important and interesting to me too. Yeah, you know, so much of how we even approach discipline is related to like how we were schooled. And, you know, we all know that how we were schooled was just more often than not just awful, (laughs) especially as like people of color and as women. And so it's like, We need to rethink and create spaces for ourselves to show up in alignment with our work, in alignment with our lives in ways that feel pleasurable and in ways that feel generative and not restrictive in any way. So it's a journey, I guess. I don't even know if I offered anything specific in terms of like in the way of practices. But for me, like I recognize I have a lot of privilege in terms of I've gotten to a point where like I can set up my day pretty much how I like and everything that Alexandria was saying around identifying like the things that she knows that she needs, essentially I'm paraphrasing, but to feel sustained, that is like everything to me, you know? And so like she was saying, I too, the days where I don't do it. And I literally was writing about this in my journal yesterday because like I got to Chicago on I don't even know what day it is. Again, time is irrelevant. The day after I got to Chicago, I like spent some time journaling, but I didn't meditate and I literally always meditate. (laughs) But I, I know what happened. I journaled and then I was like, oh, if I just do all these quick work things, then I'll meditate. And then the quick work things lasted a whole several hours. And then I was wondering why I was so anxious in the afternoon. And I was like, sis, you didn't meditate, you know? And it wasn't like, you didn't meditate, you're awful. It was like, oh, you didn't meditate and that's okay. And so then in the early evening, I spent some time meditating and I felt so much better. And then I had a whole nother slew of revelations that I went and told Abana about and wrote them down in my journal. And then you came over and we all danced. It was a whole vibe. So essentially it's like, okay to also get off track of whatever we know does fuel us up and does sustain us and then it's really essential that once we identify that we've gotten off track that we just give ourselves more love again just because you don't have to put a qualifier on loving yourself or caring for yourself it's just like okay you know it's okay and now we're back (laughs) one more question or a comment yes Hi, ladies. My name's Alex. I just want to firstly thank you both for creating this space. Um, I think what you ladies mentioned about intuition was really important to me. I also identify as a very like sensitive person, very emotional. So I'm, I'm wondering, too, like in experiencing pain throughout our lives, because I'm sure that all of us have at some point and probably will, how does experiencing pain and betrayal sharpen one's intuition and how can you navigate that in relationships going forward not just in romance but in friendships and in fa- within family how can we open ourselves up to trusting but also love like we've never been hurt or i don't know if that's like the phrase to use uh, or if that's even the right way to think about it does that make sense? Like, how can we do that? Um, yeah, this is something I've been thinking a lot about because <laughs> I, 
I made a confession earlier this week about being in love. And like this love has been something that I had to go through waves of just trust, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Trust with this person, trust with myself, Mm -hmm. forgiveness. And I've realized that these things, I mean, they're inherent. They're part of life, you know, they're, um, they're the foundation of life, mm-hmm. ultimately. You can't get rid of love and pain. Mm-hmm. They inform one another. Actually, mm-hmm. you can love someone so hard that it hurts, yes. right? Yes. So um, I think two things become really important in this process. For one, finding ways to integrate humor and play mm-hmm. into the trust and forgiveness aspect. Mm-hmm. I know, if I know anything, it's that I know nothing at all. And so I kind of have opened up to this mentality of like being a very playful fool (laughs) in a lot of things um, because I am constantly just smacked in the face with new experiences that widen my perspective of the heights or the depths of where my own love and my capacity of love can grow and reach. Yeah, I I think that play is really important in that. And I'm trying to think about how I got to that moment. It starts with yourself, honestly. And I believe in expectations, but I also don't believe in expectations. It's hard. You know, um, I think that Expectations that stem or generate from value systems, right? I think those are non-negotiable, right? right? Mm -hmm. But then beyond that, I think it's really important just for us to show up and be present for ourselves and for other people. And yeah, there are going to be times when that presence inconveniences you or you are inconvenienced for the other person right and so much of that is just about acceptance and continuing to push and move forward and understanding that everything is temporary I'm gonna alley-oop to Lauren but that's my perspective on it yeah so this is related to intuition and like how our experiences with pain and or betrayal that's really interesting I mean, what comes to mind right now for me is like love and fear, right? I am someone who tries my best to always commit to love rather than fear. And so something that I get fairly often as a question is related to, well, how do I know what's my intuition speaking? And like, what's the difference sometimes between that and fear? Because sometimes a thought will come into our mind and it'll seem like a practical choice. And then you're like, is that fear though? Or is that love? And I think then sometimes experiences of betrayal and pain can create an element of fear and like uncertainty. And then we're in a place where we're not trusting ourselves to make the right decision. But that too is an aspect of the human experience of like, you're gonna get hurt a couple of times in a day. (laughs) (laughs) Let alone the course of your whole human experience. And so trusting again I'm talking about your higher self a lot but like trusting your higher self to really guide you through the experiences like knowing that you don't always have to rely on yourself alone that's not 
we were put on this earth to be relational beings and you can be relational with yourself, relational with people that you have been destined to be like deeply connected and supported to in this lifetime. So always perhaps asking yourself, is this discernment that I'm feeling or is this action that I'm sensing I should take? Is it rooted in fear? Is it rooted in love? And allowing that to help guide the way that you move and make choice as well. Yeah, it's not black and white. It's very gray space. I've found myself living in like only the gray space lately and it's very strange for me. I'm like, what? I just released all control and it's like, good, because I never had control anyway. I just thought I did, you know? We love thinking we're in control. I mean, I think a lot about just what is this attachment. I understand how, you know, knowing really informs our being, Mm -hmm. right? But it's different when you're dealing with other people, right? Like, what is this attachment to having this absolute knowing of an individual? I think when you have that, then things aren't fun anymore. Like, I I like mystery. I I love for things to unfold. And, I mean, betrayal, I don't like that. (laughs) But... (laughs) I mean, even in the, I, I think about some of the darkest mm-hmm. moments in my history of relationships, right? And for the most part, more often than not, my relationships, through communication, through time, they've gotten a lot stronger mm-hmm. through those, those moments and periods. And I also think, you know, people are immature. Um, and no one no one knows at the end of the day what is the right way and so I just think that that level of compassion is important too it's hard it's really really hard and some people really don't deserve it and I think that's okay too yeah when your intuition is telling you to like let something go or burn or die or whatever cut it off yeah that's okay you know, and you can let that be a lesson within itself that teaches you how to love better the next time. Yes, I think unless someone's like, I need to ask this question or I need to pose this thing. Yes. Uh, hi, I'm DeAndre. Uh, super grateful for this conversation. Thank you. Um, as part of my expansion this year, I've been facing how to strike out on my own in terms of embracing my own ideas and investing in myself versus collaboration. For a long time, I've been feeding off of the energy of working with others. And I thought I would just ask, how do you, I guess, strike that harmony between collaboration and pushing your own creative projects forward? I think everything comes in waves and that's okay. You know, I came out of a period of really isolating myself for a couple of years and Even now, I think I'm still doing stuff with people, but a lot of, I'm rarely in environments like this (laughs) now because I'm just constantly on the go. And I think if that's what your spirit is calling for, your soul is calling for, that's totally fine. I think where I become weary is just that moment in my own experience where that emphasis of solitude or self-resilience, right, falls out of balance and things start to feel cold. They're not warm anymore. Yeah, it's something that I'm able to recognize pretty quickly in my body. And 
an indicator for me that, okay, it's time to open up, <laughs> relinquish some of the need to do it all or take it all on. But I totally relate to precisely what it is that you're talking about. I, I mean, even in this day, it's been collaborations all, all morning, and I love that, you know, but I'm also in a period right now where I'm trying to get my own business off the ground. And so one of my the tension really has been, okay, how do you create a framework in which you can put yourself first, but also create space for really doing um, for others? Because I think that's a part of the human experience, too. I don't think things necessarily need to be absolute. I'll probably suggest that, you know, this moment that you're in right now is a phase, and you'll, you'll be back. Uh, maybe if your collaborations in the past have been successful, there's a reason why you were doing them for so long working with other people. But I also just want to encourage and tell you that it's okay, you know, to stand on your own two feet. Like you, you have two feet precisely for doing that. So do it, <laughs> you know, don't ask for permission, just go for it. I say this to you as I'm really saying it for myself, but yeah, there's no reason to feel any type of shame or way about it. It just is what it is. Ashe. <laughs> I ain't got nothing more to add to that. I think that was a really beautiful segue for us to wrap up with you in terms of hearing about what it is that you have on the horizon with your beautiful brand and business and um, to also share how our community can stay in touch with you. Yes, follow me on IG. Well, I don't know. Maybe don't follow me on Instagram. I have a love-hate relationship. I don't even love Instagram. I'm going to be very real. Like, I really don't like Instagram, but I'm on there at finding underscore Ijoma, I-J-E-O-M-A. There's also, just if you Google me, there's only one Alexandria Rebu. I try to... Special. Update. Yeah, I, I try to update my website pretty often, you can email me. I send out newsletters, kind of like letters. I really like that, actually. I'm trying to get back to that. Our newsletters are amazing. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, I, I am in the process of relaunching my business, Finding Ijoma, which started when Lauren and I met five Literally. years ago. She was the first person to reach out to me to collaborate. I was like, oh, someone wants to do something with Black Girl Gnome? Cool. Yeah, and I didn't even, I thought it was like this established thing. I didn't know. I nope. thought you were older than me. I was like so impressed by you. Still am. Oh my God, thank you. I mean, yeah, at the time, Finding Joma was just a project. It was a attempt to really rekindle my relationship to my cultural heritage, my Nigerian roots. I was making bags and wallets from the fabrics that my dad had brought back for me. And now it's really expanding into, um, in addition to products that make women or individuals like me who love the fabric of life feel at home wherever they go. Um, it's also dedicated to curatorial experiences, which is something that I've been doing for a long time now. And there will be a like online or digital storytelling component to it as well kind of documenting my travels and my research. I'm a little bit of a nerd in intellect, so I, that component, being able to write, is really important to me, and I want to be able to create space for other individuals to do that too. 
Maybe we'll be able to catch the soundscapes of Martinique there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out how to weave my DJing and my love for music into the narrative or whatever. We'll get there. But yeah, if y'all ever need a DJ, you like Afrobeats, Caribbean music, um, R&B, house music, club, I'm your girl. DJ A. I just made that up. That's not her DJ name. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Do you have a DJ name? Finding Ijoma. Oh, you know what? There we go. Hashtag found her. Yes. <laughs> we might get the turntables out in a second and cut a rug. This rug in particular. No, that's not going to happen. But we will vibe. Thank you all, though, so much for joining for this conversation. Let's give it up for Alexandria again. Yes. And for those of you who might not be familiar with Black Girl in Ohm, you can check us out on Instagram at Black Girl in Ohm, and it's O-M. And our website is the same. We have a lot of new things coming. We're celebrating year five next month, which is, I'm like, what? Insane in the membrane. <laughs> five? That's amazing. And I love numbers. And five is the number of freedom, independence, so, you know, all of that, we're just speaking over that next year. Get them. Get them. <laughs> so thank you all so much for coming. It's been a pleasure. Black Girl and Ohm creates space for women of color to breathe easy. Thank you so much to India Jordan, our audio engineer who made sure today's episode sounded fantastic. Thanks to Kali B for the amazing music at the top and the end of the show. Valerie Titus Glover, your continual support of our podcast through digital strategy, getting up our podcast audio descriptions and more is so forever something that we cherish. Our community, wow, y'all are so phenomenal. We couldn't do this show without you. And I want to encourage all of you who are super fans of the Black Girl Known Podcast, the guests on our show, and the topics that we cover to head on over to www.patreon.com slash blackgirlandown. You'll find out how you can get access to exclusive clips, bonus audio, and more behind the scenes of what we have going on here, as well as the ability to chime in and give your input to what you want to see here on the Black Girl Known Podcast. So head on over and check it out. Thanks, y'all.